Hey, I'm Adam. And I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 189, Ghostbusters Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, welcome to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, hi. Hi, Chris. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great, as always. Uh, last episode, we held our first ever pop culture fantasy draft. Derek, you and I each drafted a team of pop culture from the year 1984. We had a panel of judges vote on our lists. We we have a winner. But, uh, but more on that in a bit. So we're going to come back to that. But first off, we got a couple things we got to get to. First of all, since our last episode a week ago, we um, actually celebrated um, a milestone around here. Derek celebrated a birthday. birthday my friend well thank you sir and uh, i know your birthday's coming up soon so we'll be repeating this little exercise in just a few weeks Mm -hmm. now it's been a week like i say since we last spoke anything new in the world of pop culture for you yeah a couple of things so the first one is going to be near and dear to your heart my friend i like where this is going when i say the bruce what do you think of? Uh, I think of my hometown back over in Bruce County and then the commercial that I just did uh, the other week. Of course you do. So as often is the case, mm-hmm. late one night earlier this week when I couldn't sleep, I was flicking through the plethora of channels that I have in my cable package trying to find something to watch that wasn't just a repeat of something I've seen a hundred times before. And on TV Ontario, I found a documentary series called The Bruce. Wow. And it's, it's three episodes, and uh, which I didn't know at the time. Mm-hmm. I caught the third episode, and it is literally the history of Bruce County. It says the three part, this three-part documentary series mm-hmm. about The Bruce exploring the history of Bruce County, County and the I think it's pronounced Saugeen Bruce Peninsula in That's Ontario, correct. Canada. Yes. Uh, yeah. So you're telling me it was a documentary? For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. And, and how was this documentary on well, my, my hometown? Say, this is a little more... Chris's documentaries than Derek's documentaries. <laughs> I only yes. caught the third episode. 
I was a little sleepy because it was like two in the morning because that's when you air a documentary about the Bruce when nobody's awake. <laughs> and I've recorded it and I haven't had a chance to watch it. Was I, I in it? I, like, did they, did they feature me in it? Because it. I had a TV show, you know, like, did they go like local celebrities or something like that? Well, this is this is more the literal history of the, the, of the Bruce. So I, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. And I don't normally talk about things I haven't seen. But I couldn't contain myself on this one. So I'm going to have to try and find the other two episodes because I'd like to watch them in order. And the one I've got on my PVR is the third of three. And I thought, you know what? If I really want to understand Chris and who he is, I need to watch this documentary. And <laughs> Good luck on that if, one. If I can find it online anywhere on demand, I will let you know. And when we come back next week, I will make a point. If, even if I haven't found the first two episodes, I will watch the one I have on my PVR just to see. But although it said it was from 2018, the footage I did see before I started to hit record was pretty old school. So I'm not really holding out hope that it's going to be awesome. I think it's going to be kind of laughably bad, but it is a part of Canadian history, a part of the Ontario history. It's a part of the history of the place where you grew up. So I'm going to give it a fighting chance before I really dump on it. And we'll talk about it a little more next week. Man, you think it looks old school. Have, have you seen my old TV show? But that was as old school as you can get. And, and, the, yeah. and the thing is, too, if you really want to understand me, don't go back and watch a documentary on the Bruce. Go back and watch like WKRP in Cincinnati, you know, or Happy yeah. Days or something. Yeah, I figured that. Now, so that was sort of my, my, uh, my, my pick that had to, uh, you know, appeal to you. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I want to talk about is Marvel Cinematic Universe. Of course. Now, I know you're not a huge fan of the Marvel Cinematic. You haven't seen many except for the ones that I've suggested that you watch the podcast. Mm -hmm. But they have had some offerings of late that I I feel I need to talk about. So earlier this week, as a birthday present, my wife treated me to the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe offering. It's a film called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So um, the movie was great. If you are a fan of the Marvel Universe and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I strongly recommend you go check out this film. If you can see it in the theater, fantastic. But I understand it's also offered through Disney Plus if you have the super extreme premiere uh, package and all that jazz that comes with it. Um, you can you can pay a few bucks and get it online. But if you're anything like me, I would much rather see this kind of movie in the theater. So we uh, we threw on our masks and we went to see it, and and it did not disappoint. It was visually stunning. It was a character I knew very little about, despite the fact that I'm a huge Marvel Comics nerd. Um, but it did a very good job of creating characters you give a crap about, and uh, under you know that's one of the things Marvel does well is they they know how to how to do a movie. Like they have a formula where they introduce these characters before they become superheroes. They, they let you understand who they are and what their motivations are and what their weaknesses are. And you, you learn to love these characters and then they throw them into situations where they have to become superheroes. And so now you, you feel personally invested in the, the plight of these heroes and you want them to win because you care about them. And this movie follows that formula exactly in the best possible way. It's got a great casting. It's got uh, um, uh, Simu Liu, I believe is how his name's pronounced. He's uh, one of the cast members from uh, Kim's Convenience, a little Canadian TV show that we've talked about on many occasions. And uh, man, he is perfect for this role. 
And uh, it, it, again, it was fantastic. Aquafina has a role in a supporting uh, supporting cast. So for people who are like, well, I want to know people I recognize. I don't really want to go into the Aquafina casting. Aquafina was like a kind of bottled water. What's that? Well, yes, there is a bottled water called Aquafina, but this is a, uh, a, a an Asian comedian who has done quite well for herself. Her stand-up is hilarious. She's had a number of different projects. And uh, she's, she's incredibly TV. refreshing. Yes, leverage. and uh, she was uh, she was got a, a, a comedy out now. Jeez, um, um, I can't think of the name of it. Something about Queens. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but uh, it's quite funny. Um, anyway, this movie Shang Chi. It, it's a martial arts movie. So if you're into martial arts flicks, whether you know Marvel Cinematic Universe or not, if you go to see this expecting a martial arts movie, you will be impressed. the The fighting sequences are awesome. And if you're just a Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of person, there are some callbacks and some wink winks to some of the other franchises you already know. And of course, like every other Marvel movie, stay through the credits because there's a couple of teasers that uh, that give you a hint of what's coming next. And uh, no, it was good. I would give it, I would say an A minus. It's, it's quite strong. It's definitely not the absolute best offering for Marvel, but it is great. And uh, uh, I was very happy to spend the money to see in the theater. And, um, you know, to see a movie where you celebrate an Asian character, an Asian superhero with a predominantly Asian cast. And like, honestly, Chris, half the movie is subtitled because all the key people are speaking. I want to say Mandarin, and I'm sorry if that's not correct. Um, like it, it's more than 10 minutes before any English is spoken in this movie at all. But it works so perfectly. They found a really nice balance of how to, uh, you know, have both the characters speaking in Mandarin and speaking in English and it makes sense for when they are speaking one language versus the other and visually it's fantastic so gotta recommend this one for sure Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings if you haven't seen it and you're interested in the Marvel Universe or you're interested in martial arts movies check it out it's great my pop culture uh, contribution this week is a little bit more old school than that. Of course it is. <laughs> so, so I was up at the trailer this past weekend. And the thing is, when I first get there, I always need to take some time and just put stuff away. You know, like there's the clothes and the beer and the food, mostly the beer. And I'm, I'm puttering around and I'm, I'm doing everything. And I decided I'm going to pop a DVD in, you know, just to have something playing in the background. You know, and so I put on season five of Happy Days because, you know, it's me. Right. So I'm working away. Happy Days is on. And then all of a sudden I turn and I notice my youngest son is sitting there on the couch and he's glued to the TV watching this. This is a kid that only watches like animated shows. Right. And then next thing you know, my other son comes in with his friend and they're like, hey, dad, what you watching? I'm like, oh, we're watching Happy Days and Fonzie's going to jump over a shark. And they're like, oh, cool. So they, they sit down and all of a sudden there's all these kids watching Fonzie in 2021 and one happy dad, let me tell you. So it was just awesome. So I wanted to share that with you. Oh, another that, that makes me happy. But another thing that makes me happy is this. Here's your dad joke of the week. All right, Derek. What is a pirate's favorite fast food restaurant? Uh, I I'm I don't know, and I'm kind of not looking forward to where this is going. But let's say I don't know, Chris. What is his favorite restaurant? Arby's. 
Yeah. I, I don't know if favorite's the right word there. <laughs> X marks the spot on that joke. Two boy. Be hardy. Oh, my God. Rocky Three, I think, was the best one. He is so jacked in this movie. Oh, my God, does he look fantastic in this film. He I am the tiger, baby. I'm going to give it another try. I don't watch too many movies after 1989. <laughs> <laughs> I know next to nothing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Boo. Now, before we get to our movie <clears throat> for this week, we've got a little bit of business to attend to. So, as I mentioned, on our last episode, we debuted something new. So, Derek, you had this idea to combine two of our favorite things in the world, pop culture and fantasy sports. And, and if you haven't listened to it yet, it's episode 188. And what we did was we took a look at the year 1984. And we took a look at it from a pop culture perspective. That's what we do. And what we did was we held a fantasy draft. And we each had to draft a team of three movies, three TV shows, three songs, and one personal pick. All from the year 1984. And, you know, what fantasy draft would be complete without a winner? You know, so what we did was we put together a, a panel of seven judges. We wanted to come up with an odd number right, to eliminate any chance of a tie. And then I just want to say, before we get into this, Derek, uh, of the seven judges, three of them are made up of your wife and your two best friends. So, you know, yeah. I, I felt like I really needed to knock this one out of the park, if you know, if I wanted to overcome any potential biases, you know, that might exist. But I just want to point out, after we drafted our teams, we sent the list to the panel, the results are in, but before we get to the winner, I just want to point out one thing because uh -huh. last week you mentioned you mentioned two things last week. You mentioned number one that you were going to win, and that it would be an absolute landslide. And I got to tell you what. Yeah, I think I, I. So before you jump in there, yeah, I, I have since spoken to those three judges and and got a sense of how they voted. And one of the things that disappointed me a little bit with all three judges, and I'm sorry, judges is it didn't sound like any of them listened to the show before they cast their vote. And so I feel that part of our exercise during the during the, the, the draft was to explain and justify why these were good picks. And if all they saw were the final outcomes on paper, I thought I had a pretty strong team. But when I started to solicit some feedback about why they, you know, at least a couple of them voted for your picks, they really had some harsh things to say about my picks that I addressed in the show. So I, I kind of have a feeling I'm going to be eating a little crow here because I think you're going to run away with this one. But I'm a little bummed out, and I'm sorry, friends, that you didn't listen to the show before you voted. So anyway, Chris, how did the outcome, how did it, how, what was the outcome? You, you were absolutely 100% right. It was an absolute landslide here we go oh it was a landslide oh my goodness the final vote tally was six to one yeah and the one vote that your list got came with this comment it was really close a few of the other votes came in with comments like, it's not close, it's list A by a landslide, list A by a mile. We, we just give them the list, list A or list B. We don't say whose is whose. 
Um, and, and, and the thing is, if I look back on it, you won the coin toss. You got to pick first. And, and the second that you said Miami Vice as your first pick, I knew I won the draft. It was over. Miami Vice wasn't even on my list of TV shows, so it was a bit of a throwaway pick. And I just felt that the draft just played into my hands from there. I love fantasy drafts. I love fantasy sports. It was a great idea to do this on the podcast. I got to give credit to you. It was your idea. So so kudos, bud. Yeah. No, I, I when I, when I again, when I talked to the judges, again, I didn't try and influence the vote, so I waited for them to vote before I reached out to any of them. Uh, and once they voted, they all reached out to me and said, I've cast my vote. But they all said, oh, I voted for this list versus this list. Which one was yours? And I'm like, you mean you didn't listen to the show? It's not a secret. And there I go. But all of them said that Ghostbusters was the definitive, that was, and that was your first movie pick. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what about the TV shows? And they said, ah, I didn't place that in a, like I didn't give that as much weighting as they did to the movies. And I said, mm-hmm. what about my songs? And they go, Ghostbusters was such a good movie. I felt everything after that was irrelevant. And I'm like, guys, come on. This is a, this is a team. You don't, you know, I drafted Wayne Gretzky. That doesn't mean you win the hockey pool. Like there's a team working behind. Have you ever had Wayne Gretzky on your team? You win. Yeah. And I won every year. So anyway, anyway, I'm going to, you can explain your fantasy team all you want. You won. Congratulations. I don't, I I still think my list was better than your list, Mm -hmm. but I think that some of the rationale again, and I, this is, this is true in any time when you allow people to vote. If you give people the opportunity to vote, there is a chance they may not vote for what you want them to vote for. And that's, you know, this is not to say that their vote was right or wrong. They just, you know, you give someone the option to Mm -hmm. to vote. They're going to pick their, they're going to vote for whatever reason they, you know, regardless of what criteria you put in front of them, you give them the option to vote, they're going to vote. And that's what happened. We and gave them the option and six out of seven picked my yeah. list. And and, and, and we now had that said, I know, though, honestly, though, mm-hmm. now that I understand sort of, again, assuming we have some of the same judges for next time and we may mm-hmm. have some new judges rotating in and out. Now that I get a better sense of sort of how they're going to vote. And you mentioned this numerous times when we drafted, yep. you were saying, I'm picking this for the voters. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily pick what I thought the voters would want. I picked what I thought would be a better choice. But now that I understand how the voters are are voting, I will adjust my strategy for future years. We got nine more years in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You took year number one. Congratulations. You got it. One of the keys but- to winning in fantasy sports is understanding the format you know, mm-hmm. that you're in. So the, the, the one thing was that we said was we were going to have a trophy and it was going to be Funko Fonzie. So the Funko Fonzie, I'm looking at it right now, it's, it's staying on my mantle, at least for now, until our next uh, pop culture fantasy draft, which we're going to hold next month. And, um, and and for that one, since I picked 1984 as the first year, Derek, you get to choose our next year. So just think about that. You don't have to mention yeah, it now. Yeah, I've got you know, a couple of years yeah, in put mind, some thought into it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to pick the year yet because I think that's that it's a little too long to think about it. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I don't want to, in my mind, pick a year so that I have an unfair advantage. So I'm, I'm cycling through two or yep. three options. And when we get the week before, I'll throw it out and we'll no, go from perfect. there. Yeah. Well, since so we, for, yeah, sorry, Chris, I was just gonna say for listeners out there, if you want to be a part of our panel, all we need is an odd number. We had seven this time. If we have nine next time or 11 next time or 21 next time, it doesn't matter. I mean, Chris may decide to to just limit it to a certain number and we'll we'll hold you off for the next one. But if you're listening to this podcast and you think I want to be a member of the voting panel, especially if you don't think that Chris's list was awesome, 
Just reach out to Chris on Twitter. Let them know you want in. Go on our Facebook page. Let us know you want to be one of the next voters, and we'll, we'll hook you up. That's right. All of our contact information is on our website, popgoesyourworld.com. So reach out to us. Uh, so 1984 was our movie for our draft, and we decided we should each pick a movie from 1984 to review. I got us started by nominating Ghostbusters, you know, my winning pick, my first overall pick. Um, and obviously, we're talking about the original here from 84, needless to say, but... That being said, Derek, I want to tap into your knowledge tonight, you know, for for your, all of the, the, the knowledge you have with all this millennial pop culture in regard to the remake. And I think, I could be wrong, I think there's talk of another sequel, you know, so, so we'll get to that in a second. But so Ghostbusters is written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, directed by Ivan Reitman, released on June 8th, 1984. The budget was about $25 million and it grossed over $295 million at the domestic U.S. box office. Uh, it was the number one movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Then there was Gremlins, The Karate Kid, Police Academy, Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, Terms of Endearment, and Romancing the Stone. We did mention this a bit on the show last week. What an amazing year for movies. Yeah, so good. And like Splash was 11, like, you know, and and the thing was, that doesn't even count some of the movies that didn't make the top 10 at the box office. Things like Purple Rain and Revenge of the Nerds, The Terminator, 16 Candles, Top Secret, and, and a couple of my personal favorites, DC Cab, Johnny Dangerously, and of course, my personal pick, This is Spinal Tap, you know, amazing year for movies but with all those movies the number one movie was Ghostbusters and I think it's worth going back and looking at it's going to be a little hard to dig into it too much because I mean you know what can you say about a movie that's you know this you know old 37 years old but uh, you know everything's been said about it but I I I think it's worth us kind of digging in a bit and then the first thing I would ask you Derek is we had a chance to go back and watch it this week how does it hold up after almost 40 years what do you think so Ghostbusters is a great film. Like, if this isn't in your top 20 all-time favorite movies, you're making your list wrong. Like, this this is a fantastic movie. There are a handful of scenes that don't hold up well, um, but some of them you don't really realize are a problem until you've watched the movie 10 or 20 times or that you've watched it recently. And again, I assume, Chris, you, like me, saw this for the first time in the theater in 1984. Is that I correct? Did. Yeah, I was 14. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, and I would have been 10 or 11 years old. So, you know, when you're seeing this movie at that age, in that time frame, in the culture that it was, it's great. I mean, it's great regardless. But some of the things that we sort of watch today and see as, well, this is a little problematic. This didn't hold up so well. These were not issues in 84. And that's not to say that they, you know, again, like we say with things like Revenge of the Nerds. There are certain things that by today's standards should never have been okay. We're not going to excuse them, but there are not many examples of that that I could see in, in Ghostbusters. It, for, the, for the large part, Ghostbusters is just a great movie altogether, which is, I think, part of the reason it has endured as a franchise. I think that's part of the reason that they felt there was money to be made by making a reboot, that there was money to be made by doing a sequel. Um, you know, you see a lot of people... Um, so like one of the, we talked earlier, earlier today, we talked about, uh, Shang-Chi 
and uh, Simu is the lead, and he's from Kim's Convenience. One of the other leads, leads from Kim's Convenience is my good friend Paul Sun Young Lee, and he is a Ghostbusters nut. He has the Ghostbusters outfit. He's built his own proton pack. He has this like huge cosplay Ghostbusters outfit where he's got the goggles and everything. Like so many people love everything to do about the original Ghostbusters. And there's so many good reasons for it. I mean, the movie is just great from start to finish. And I'm sure we'll go into some of the details with very, very, very few hiccups along the way. Speaking of which, have you seen the remake? The one with the female cast? I did. I would give it a C plus, maybe a B minus, depending on the day of the week. In theory, it worked. In in execution, eh, not not necessarily so much. I think they were a little bit too hung up on the throwbacks and the callbacks to the original. I think if they had just said, we're going to completely reboot this in a way that we think will work, they had their female characters um, which were fairly well-developed characters. They all had their own little quirks, but it wasn't just, we've got a girl version of Peter Venkman. We've got a girl version of Egon. We've got a girl version of, you know, Spangler. They like, they actually had a backstory that, that worked in my mind. It worked. And one of the things I loved, loved, loved about the reboot. And I think this is sort of the only thing that, that a lot of people did like was they had Chris Hemsworth, who we know as Thor from the Marvel cinematic universe, and he was hired as their receptionist, and he was the gender flip equivalent of the dumb blonde secretary, where he's the dumb blonde guy who looks like a supermodel who shows up and is just terrible at his job. But because he is so pretty, all of the all of the female Ghostbusters who are all like scientists were just like forgiving. They're like, well, he's pretty. Well, we don't care that he can't really answer the phones. And he provided a tremendous amount of comic relief over and above all the other funny things that the other women brought to the to the to the film but in my mind Chris Hemsworth's addition to that was just sort of like the cherry on top of what was just an okay Sunday to begin with see my question would be when it comes to this remake with the female cast is why like just why like other than money why would you do this it just oh it's such a yeah. bad idea money that was it yeah. that was it it was just so it was stupid. it was a vehicle for these female i mean it's Kristen wig and um melissa mccarthy right thank you i was no. just blanking on her name who are both fantastic female comics in their own right and uh you know i mean if they're in a film together you've got to expect there's going to be some great parts and there were there was a lot to like about their seats together um i mean bridesmaids if you haven't seen it is a fantastic movie and we will definitely have to do it in the not too distant future on this show it's on my list of movies to have you watch and it is great and you were kind of hoping for that kind of chemistry to to recreate in this and it was not as great as you would hope but again i'm not here to just dump on that mm -hmm. movie let's let's talk about what we liked about the original yeah i mean the original so if, if you go back to, to the original idea for this story it came from dan Aykroyd. And originally, yes. he came up with this as an idea to be a vehicle for him and John Belushi to start in together. Because if yes. you think back to, you know, 1978 to 1981, the two of them had become a major comedy team, right? I mean, they, oh, were, yeah. they were in SNL together. They did the Blues Brothers Blues and Neighbors, Brothers. you know, yep. and they also appeared together in 1941 and The Ruddles. And... Aykroyd came up with actually two movie ideas for them to star in together. One was Spies Like Us, 
and the other one was this, Ghostbusters. Now, unfortunately for Aykroyd and, and the rest of the world, for that matter, John Belushi died in March of 1981. So both of those projects got put on the back burner. But then a few years go by, you know, and they decide to revisit this idea. And then they write a script and they, they get uh, Aykroyd's other SNL star, Bill Murray, to come on board. And the other thing was, is that right around this time, Eddie Murphy had become a breakout star on SNL. So the original script, when they wrote it, had him in the movie as well. Could you imagine Aykroyd and Bill Murray and Eddie Murphy all together in this movie, Derek? Well, I think we that talked about this. Oh. I think we talked about this in Awana. Did we do Beverly Hills Cop as a review? I think yes. we did. Yeah. I think it might have been in that one where this came up earlier. And it's like, I think if Eddie Murphy's role in this movie was supposed to be the Winston Zedmore role, mm-hmm. and again, I'm just sort of making that stereotypical conclusion that the it black was. guy plays yep. the black guy. I think that Eddie Murphy in that role would have stolen too much of the movie because Zedmore doesn't appear until like 45 minutes to an hour into the movie. And if Eddie Murphy shows up halfway through your movie, I think the second half of your movie becomes the Eddie Murphy show, which I think would have hurt this. I think that having, um, er, sorry, Ernie Hudson, that's his name, right? Yeah. As the, as the, uh, as, as Winston Zedmore who comes in, it's like, he's there. He has an important role and he doesn't take unnecessary focus away from the main three Ghostbusters that we already know, which is not to belittle his role or diminish his, his contributions to this, but it's clear that he's the outsider in this comedy trio. And I think if Eddie Murphy had been in that role, he would have clearly overshadowed the other three given his success at the time. And I think from what I understand of Eddie Murphy, he's a pretty um, domineering personality. And I think on the set, he probably would have pushed for more lines and more jokes and more focus on his character. Again, I could be totally wrong on this, but I get the sense that that's how it would have played out. And it's not to say that the movie wouldn't have still been great, but I think that that would have changed the movie that we know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the part was originally supposed to be way bigger of, of, of Winston. And, and, and then when, by the time they got around to making it, Eddie Murphy was committed to making Beverly Hills Cop. So he wasn't available. But yeah, this uh, part okay. was supposed to be way bigger. And so when he wasn't available, they scaled it way back. And then uh, that's, when, okay. that's when Ernie Hudson ended up, you know. Got it, got it. Okay. So, so I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So let's talk about the cast a little bit, you know, because it's, it's worth like digging into these guys. Bill Murray. Talk about an A-plus cast. Oh, oh my God. God. So Bill Murray is one of the most prolific and influential comedy stars of the 1980s right absolutely like you got stripes and meatballs my personal favorite you got ghostbusters here you got groundhog day scrooge i mean this guy was at the forefront of what you could argue was the greatest time in the history of comedy movies probably my favorite line in the whole movie is from Bill Murray. And I think if you ask most people what is their favorite line from the movie, and we'll, we'll come back to this a bit later. We'll, we'll ask, you know, some of our favorite lines. Mm-hmm. And I think if you ask most people, they would say, he slimed me, you know, is like yeah. the most memorable line from the movie. But for me, it's the one right after that when he's laying on the floor and he's all covered in slime and goo and he goes, 
I feel so funky. I feel so funky. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that line gets me. I just laugh. It, seemed, it was probably improv. I mean, I that seems like the kind of. <laughs> I think a lot of Bill Murray stuff was improv, yeah. and, and mainly you can. So again, when, when you've seen a movie as many times, like I've seen this movie a lot. Like, yeah, me too. So I, I'm sort of keeping a list based on a conversation you and I had of how many movies in your life. And again, as pop culture guys, we've seen a lot of movies a lot of times. How many movies have you seen? 25 times or more in their entirety and ghostbusters makes that list for me without question and so when you've seen a movie that many times when you watch it again one of two things happens you spend the whole time on your phone and you just listen to the dialogue which i gotta be honest i did for part of it or you watch the movie and you scour it for details that you think you might have missed on a previous viewing and i actually found a few things in this viewing i'd never seen before and one of the things that I watched for this time around was this idea of what lines do I think were improv? And the best way that I could judge that was the reaction of the other actors in the moment, in the scene, right. based on what was said around them. And, and that's usually, in a comedy movie, that's usually a good tell. If the actors in the supporting parts, you know, to either side of the person doing the improv genuinely laugh or make a face or just react in a way that you think that just seems too natural to be acting. It's probably improv. And believe me, I saw those kinds of reactions mm -hmm. a lot when I rewatched this this week. Absolutely. So um, another one I want to talk about is Dan Aykroyd, one of my favorite actors of all time. I just love him. Uh, I mean, he was starring in comedy movies right at a time when I, as a young person was really getting into movies and comedy I mean, hell, the, the Blues Brothers, Ghostbusters, Trading Places, Spies Like Us, even Dr. Detroit. I mean, that movie bombed, but I liked that movie a lot, you know? Never saw it. Even his uh, his dramatic roles in movies like My Girl, Driving Miss Daisy. Like, oh man, all the Wasn't writing... he one of the Indiana Jones? Wasn't he in Temple of Doom? He was in Temple of Doom. He had a cameo right at the beginning. Very he, small he, part. Yeah, he shuttles him out of the plane at the beginning. That's right. Um, but like I say, all the writing that he did in these, yeah. he was, he was one of the driving forces behind that comedy movement, you know, in the seventies days and he's Canadian too. So, I mean, he gotta love that. Yeah. And Harold Ramis, jeez, oh, he's, he just is such a hugely influential guy in the comedy movement of the, the seventies and eighties. Like he wasn't a household name, you know, but I think he was one of the most important people sort of behind a lot of the comedy that came out around that time. Like he was, he was never really all that comfortable in front of the camera, you know, although he was amazing in stripes. I mean, and, and this one too, but I mean, his, his writing and his directing, when you think of movies like Caddyshack and vacation and groundhog day, like, and he had a big hand in, in the development of SETV up here in Canada. Oh, of course. Yeah. And and he was one of the pioneers going back to the 70s with some of that underground comedy, like the National Lampoon comedy movement, like with like Lemmings and, and, and the Radio Hour. This guy was a legend. He was a legend. And, yeah. you know, it's, he was really unfortunate when we lost him a couple of years ago. But I, I, I thought he was great in this. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. Again, he's, I think that he was... And a, an intelligent enough actor to understand that Bill Murray and uh, Dan Aykroyd were going to be the stars of this movie, capital S stars, this movie, they were the funny guys. 
And the best thing he could do for this movie was to be the supporting person. Maybe he was, you know, the 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 straight man to their humorous. And I think this probably was something that he picked up in a movie like Stripes, where he had already starred with Bill Murray. So he's like, you know, the best way to get Bill Murray to do his thing is just let him go and stay out of his way. <laughs> and that was definitely the impression I got with this movie was he knew how to be a part of the cast and you know, the idea of set up the joke and then move out of the way and let Bill Murray and uh, and Dan Aykroyd just do their thing. And that's not to say that he was any less of a contributor or he was any less important uh, with these other two guys. But I think when you ask people about Ghostbusters, you know, the, the original three guys before they bring Winston onto the team, like they're the crew. It's uh, it's Dan Aykroyd, it's Bill Murray, it's Harold Ramis. And uh, no, he, he was great. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Winston because Ernie Hudson, like like we like we said, this was originally written for Eddie Murphy and it was, it was a, a much bigger role. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't end up coming into the movie until about like two thirds of the way through it, right? And yeah. I really like Ernie Hudson. I, I, think he was, I think he was a great addition to this movie. Two things I always remember about him. So, so one, there was this skit on SNL when this movie came out, it had Julia Louis-Dreyfus in it. And I think it was her and Gail Mathias, if I remember correctly. And they're talking about Ghostbusters and they're talking about their favorite Ghostbuster. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus is like, I like the black one. And the other girl's like, the black one, he no do nothing. And she's like, no, but he goes faster. <laughs> I, just remember, I always remember that. And the other thing that I always remember about, about Ernie Hudson was this movie called Going Berserk. It's like this low-budget Canadian movie. Have you ever heard of it, Derek? I have not. I have not heard of it. Oh, so it's, there's this scene in it where John Candy gets arrested and he gets handcuffed to Ernie Hudson. And they're being transferred like to this maximum security prison. And then Ernie Hudson decides he's going to make a jailbreak. So he takes John Candy with him, right? And then he goes to see his girlfriend and and Ernie Hudson and her start doing it. (laughs) And John Candy is like attached to the handcuff and they put him outside the door and he's like flopping around. (laughs) He's like, he's getting pulled up and down. (laughs) It's it's such a funny movie. Oh my God. It's just, I always think of of Ernie Hudson. (laughs) I always think of uh, going berserk, but uh, anyway, but you liked him too in this, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, Ernie Hudson, number one, I remember from Ghostbusters, but number two, I remember him as the warden in the HBO series, Oz which I don't know if you've seen Oz, but no, haven't. So it's, it ran five seasons on its five seasons on HBO. And it is a hardcore full on uh, series about a maximum security men's prison. And it's everything that you could possibly think of that would ever happen in a prison. It happens and they show it. And like, believe me, it is hard R rating like there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in there and he's the warden and he his part is fantastic and by this point he's you know 15 years older than he was in Ghostbusters so he's put on a little weight he's getting a little older but he's still in pretty good shape and he definitely plays a very intimidating warden so I always remember him for those two roles Ghostbusters he plays Winston and in and as the warden in the uh the prison show Oz on HBO cool we talked about some of the guys I want to talk about some of the girls Annie Potts I love love Annie Potts. And the thing is, 
she never really achieved like this huge level of stardom. And it's too bad because I think she's amazing. She's talented and she's beautiful and she's got this super recognizable voice. But the thing, the thing is, it's, it's like her look held her back. And, and what, what I mean is like she has this habit of looking completely different in every role she's ever been in. Yeah, so, I agree. So I think it's tough for audiences to become familiar with her. You know, like if you think of movies like Corvette Summer and Ghostbusters and Pretty in Pink, she always looked so different. She was almost unrecognizable from role to role, which as an actress is great. But in terms of becoming famous, you know, not so much. Right. But I love her. She was so good. Oh, yeah. I was going to say she. So, I mean, obviously, I, I know her from Ghostbusters and then she's in Pretty in Pink in a supporting role. And again, looks very different. She was obviously one of the the four female leads in the very successful long running TV show Designing Women, mm-hmm. and which ran from the late '80s to the early '90s. And then she has more recently had success. I mean, she's had a, a very successful career. But um, again, she's very well known now as the voice actress for the Bo Peep character in the Toy Story franchise. And uh, more recently, she oh. has been um, on the television series Young Sheldon, which is the spinoff of The Big Bang Theory, where she plays Sheldon's grandmother. So she's continued. I mean, that's that's just a small spattering of her IMDb. Like here it says she has over 100 acting credits in her career. So she has had no shortage of work. But to your point, exactly. I don't think she's achieved that A plus list superstar actor um, um, recognition that a lot of other performers have received. I mean, female performers always have this this difficulty in reaching that kind of success. But considering how much she's worked and how many things she's been in, and how many big franchises she's been a part of, and how many you know important movies she's contributed to, I don't think she gets nearly enough recognition that that she should. And uh, I mean, I think people will always recognize her and remember her from Ghostbusters. And hey. That's that's not a bad legacy in spite of the other hundred movies you've been in. But if that's the only thing you ever get recognized for, that's not so bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Sigourney Weaver, I want to mention, too. She is great in everything. Like she just makes things better, I think, by being in them. But there is there's something about her in this movie. Like she is just drop dead gorgeous in this. And it's funny because Bill Murray is not your traditional leading man you know, or like <laughs> no. romantic interest, you know? And I mean, like he makes it work kind of somewhat in, in movies like, like, like this and in Groundhog Day and Meatballs, but he's just so unconventional and stripes. And stripes yeah. He's just, he's really unconventional. Like when you think of his looks and his manner, but uh, so it, 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 it kind of, it's kind of weird to see him opposite this bombshell like her. And um, uh, like I said, especially considering how, how good she looks in this movie. But uh, I don't know. I, I, th- I thought she was really good in this, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sigourney Weaver's, again, another actress who's had a fantastic career. She's obviously, I think, best known at, for her role in the Alien franchise mm-hmm. as Ripley. Uh, you know, the strong, leading female character from the Alien franchise. Like, that's, you know, I, I got to think over the years she's made a ridiculous amount of money, largely from that. But her appearance in Ghostbusters, and I mean, Ghostbusters 2, don't forget, they did a sequel to this one, Ghostbusters 2, which had pretty much a repeat of every significant cast member reappeared in the second one, including her. So, you know, if again, if that's your two legacies is Alien franchise and Ghostbusters, I think you're doing Not okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, again, 
She was in Working Girl. She was in Girls in the Mist, both of which earned her Oscar nominations. Like, she's a strong actress. She's done a lot of fantastic performances and has received some uh, critical accolades along the way. Uh, she obviously has not won an Oscar, but you know, uh, a lot of the performers she's worked alongside of have never had that kind of recognition. So I think that speaks to her ability as a performer. There's one more person in the cast I want to touch base on, and that's another Canadian, Rick Moranis. Yeah. Got his start on SCTV where he was just brilliant. And he was, he was always more of a supporting character, you know, or, or maybe like part of a team, you know, like in yeah. Strange Brew or My Blue Heaven, but... <laughs> Or, or even part of an ensemble cast, like in Parenthood. Um, he did get to play the lead in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But I, I, you could argue that was more about the, the kids, you know, than him. I heard they're rebooting that franchise, actually. Oh, really? Oh, I don't geez. know if he's going to be in the reboot, but I, I was just Who reading knows? about that recently, that they're in the process of making a reboot. So, Well, yeah. it'll be interesting because he just kind of left Hollywood, right? He left acting behind like he he kind of fell off the face of the earth now his wife died in 1991 and he decided to step away and just focus on you know raising his kids you know as a single dad so he just he yeah. walked away from it all but you but know, i mean you can't fault him for that no you got to give by him that credit point, oh by that point in his career he he obviously had a, a strong enough financial backing that you know he had done so many successful projects movies tvs what have you that you know it, it it's good that when you've earned that kind of, of dough that you can step aside, leave the career behind, do the family thing, be the dad you need to be in that circumstance. So it's like, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, I, I'm certainly, I, I'm not going to criticize or, or fault them or critique. Oh, them. No. I, I mean, Hey, as a fan, we miss the fact that he was a performer for 15 years, but, or 20 years, but the, the, the work we had from him was fantastic. Like it was unusual for him to put out a bat not, I wouldn't say put out a bad movie, but to put out a bad performance. Right. Like so many other actors, you take the jobs when they come and sometimes you get put in crap, but the best you can do is take what they give you and make it awesome. And, and that was one of his staples is they put him in a lot of crap, but he did awesome. He was so good when he appeared. And this is an example of some of his best work. He was so funny in this. He was so good. And <laughs> I'm looking up the history. It's like, apparently he was uncredited but apparently he was one of the the writers of the film uh i mean dan Aykroyd and hale ramus are listed in the credits of the movie mm -hmm. as the writers but apparently rick moranis had a very strong hand in helping them with that so again that's that's a strong legacy to leave behind i wish he'd go back and do some more work now like i i think there's a place for him you know in Hollywood. and i think he's coming back i think that was, really i think i read that recently that it was this combination of he now again he took time off, given the death, the tragic death of his wife, mm -hmm. to be a full-time dad. And now that his kids have moved on and gone to university college and, and sort of have become adults and don't need his, his uh, you know, as much nurturing, I think he's, he's planning a return in some way to the entertainment industry. And I can't wait. If that's true, I can't wait. Oh, me too. I mean, he's super talented. He's totally unique. And I, I think people really like him. Too. So I, I definitely think it would be good to see him back. I want to mention a little bit about the song. So Ray Parker Jr., he had a few hits before this. Uh, he, I think he was working with New Edition, you know, writing some songs. And all of a sudden, the record company comes to him and they're like, hey, we want you to write a song for this movie, Ghostbusters. And the thing was, I think they submitted like 60 songs and all were rejected. 
But Ray Parker Jr. song just hit the mark. It's so good. And originally, it was just supposed to be used for the beginning at the library scene. Maybe like mm-hmm. 30 seconds worth of a song. But it just took off. It just became this iconic part of the movie and, 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 a, yeah. and a part of pop culture history. It's, it was so good. Yeah, it reached, yeah, it's a great song. Reached number one it, on the charts in that, yeah, that it, summer. And it, it stayed there so for three well. weeks, right? Yep. So um, Ray Parker Jr. was part of a band called Radio, R-A-Y-D-I-O, Radio. And he had a few a few songs, a few successes, and then he went on to become Ray Parker Jr. He just went out on his own. And the only reason I know this is I have the Sirius XM radio, and every week they repeat a Billboard Top 40 countdown from a given year of the 1980s. So every so often you get a countdown from 81, a countdown from 82, a countdown from 83. And whenever they give you these countdowns, they do a whole bunch of music trivia. And Ray Parker Jr. appears in those countdowns from 80, 81, 82, 83 prior to the Ghostbusters. And he had three or four like Mm -hmm. pretty big hits. And so when they play them, you're like, even if they don't talk about it, it's like, this sounds like the guy who did the Ghostbusters song. And they come on, they're like, that was Ray Parker Jr. that you might know from Ghostbusters, but did you know? Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And so, you know, he had a reasonable radio, you know, no pun intended. He had a reasonable radio career. He had a reasonable song career. Like he wasn't just a nobody out of nowhere. He had some genuine credentials. Yeah. And then this song came out, reached number one. It was a huge hit. It is still in heavy heavy rotation on every 80s channel you're ever going to listen to um i listen to a lot of channels here where it's like hits of the 80s and 90s ghostbusters you hear it at least two or three times a week oh sure and, and then of course there's the controversy around uh the lawsuit where the, the he was sued by huey lewis in the news yeah they the said they said it was a ripoff of i wanted a new drug yes if you and listen to both songs yes. though he's kind of got a point <laughs> oh and he did so again some of the details have come out more recently. At the time, it was NDA. Nobody talks about anything. You had no idea how it worked. But more recently, they've said that when they were filming Ghostbusters and they were doing some of the um, the initial like dailies for the executives of sorry, what this was Universal, I think, and they were showing them the movie, they wanted to put some music in to give them a sense. And apparently, Huey Lewis and the News, I Want a New Drug was one of the placeholder songs they had used a lot for a lot of this movie. And so when Ray Parker Jr. went to record his song, um, you know, he made it up. And then when they when there was the lawsuit, they asked him, like, do you think this was something that influenced you? And he had to admit, of course it was something that influenced me. It was in the film footage they gave me. <laughs> and yeah, when you play them side by side, there's oh, yeah. no doubt. There is a remarkable, yeah. remarkable. I mean, they settled out of court, but I mean, Huey Lewis got money for it. So of course he did. One thing I want we'll to never, mention: we'll never know the specifics, right? And that's fine as long as we can continue to hear the Ray Parker Jr. version on the radio. I don't give a crap what the outcome was. We can hear it. It's a great song. I love it. And the video was fun too. And uh, yeah, oh, it's yeah, a great video. song. So the, to be number one. The video. The thing is, I looked the video up on YouTube, and and I couldn't find it. Not the original one. So there's music videos on yeah. YouTube that just have clips from the movie in it. But that's yeah. not what the original video was. I remember because I remember watching it. 
and it was it was pretty eighties. Like there was the, all these neon colors and everything. Oh, and Ray yeah, Parker the neon Jr. Lines. Yeah, he was in it and he was dancing around. And then there's a couple clips from the movie, but then. I remember the cast comes on and they're dancing with Ray Parker Jr. Yeah, he's walking down Broadway. Yeah, and the best part was I loved it at the end when they brought all these celebrities on to yeah. sing the title Ghostbusters. And there was like Chevy Chase and, and one of my personal favorites, Terry Gar. Yeah, Terry Peter Gar. Falk. Yes. It was a great video, but like I said, you cannot find it. At least I couldn't really? find it. I couldn't find wow. it on YouTube. So. Okay, no. Challenge accepted. I'm going to go look. Because I remember in the video, Chevy Chase does this thing with a cigarette where he like flips it into his mouth and then flips it back out. And apparently he really burned the inside of his mouth <laughs> with the cigarette when he did that. The other thing, too, was this this song was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. I mean, it lost to Stevie Wonder's um, I Just Called to Say I Love You from The Boy in Red, which totally you're going to understand. But yeah, like, I mean, this this song was massively huge. You know, when it came out, yep. it was a phenomenon in itself. Um, any favorite scenes from the movie that you want to talk about? Oh, so many. This movie has so <laughs> many good scenes. I've got a couple I, I really like. like I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I love the idea of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. <laughs> and upon the rewatch, <laughs> the Stay Puffed logo and the Stay Puffed Marshmallows are mentioned two or three times prior to the end. So... At the beginning, when Dana comes back to her apartment and the eggs jump out of their things and cook right on the counter. Yep, they're Stay Puffed Marshmallows. They're Stay Puffed Marshmallows right there next to them, and you can see the mascot. Then later in the movie, you can see it on a billboard Yes. Uh, on one of the buildings where it's Stay Puffed Marshmallows, and there's the marshmallow. Again, the first time you see this, you're not picking up on this no. whatsoever. No. Because I believe Stay Puffed was a logo created for the movie, so they yeah. wouldn't have to pay it. It didn't exist, money. yeah. Of course not. But again, even the second, third, fourth time through, you don't necessarily pick up on all these details. But when you've seen it as many times as I've seen it, you watch for those little things. What am I going to get out of this viewing that I didn't get out of the last viewing? And so you sort of have that. And this is a sign of good storytelling where the the seeds are planted. You may not realize it, but they're there. And then as you watch it again and you watch it again, you watch it again, you pick up on those little details and you're like, oh, my God. Like, talk about the icing on the cake. <laughs> There's just, they're there and you don't, it's like when you watch the sixth sense and then you go back and rewatch, you're right. like, all the clues were oh, there and there I just wasn't, yeah. I didn't know what to look for. This movie has so much of that where you don't know what to look for until you intimately know this film. And then you go back and watch it again and you're like, oh my God, that was in there. Oh my God. They figured that, like they did that same thing earlier with something else. And now we're seeing it in a way that makes more sense to this movie. So just when this tape up, you know, when they're like, don't pick anyone. And then he's like, wait, 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 we made our clear your mind. mind. (laughs) Although in that scene, when Bill Murray talks about Jagger, he says, so if we think of Jagger Hoover, Jagger Hoover is going to appear and destroy us. Why didn't Jagger Hoover appear? He, he clearly was thinking about it, but again, small nitpick. And then of course you have this Dave Huff Marshmallow man and just the scenes that come out of that. That that, that was great. Everything. And then, and then again, I'm probably stepping on your toes a bit. The whole sequence where they go to the hotel that first time and they they find the Slimer it's ghost so just that whole sequence where they're like it's their first time out and then they destroy the ballroom it's yeah. just there's so much to like about that scene one of my what favorite you, parts one yes. of my favorite parts of that sequence in the film is when they're in the elevator and they're like you know what's to worry about each of us has an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back 
switch yeah. me on. And then they turn it on and it fires up and then they all kind of like back into the corner. Yeah. The yeah. Especially Egon. It's like, yeah. oh boy, this isn't good. He backs up. You, you, so he gets like six inches further away. Yeah. Which is quite funny. Not like that would save him. If exactly. Off, but yeah. yeah. And I think I probably like one of my favorites is I love the opening scene when Venkman is conducting some sort of ESP experiment. Remember, he's showing the cards and having the yep. two volunteers try and guess yep. what's on them. And he keeps cheating and yep. saying that the girl gets them right just so we can hit on her. Yeah. And the, by so, the way, that's Jennifer Runyon. She was yep. Charles's girlfriend on Charles in Charge, Gwendolyn yep. Pierce. And yep. she was also in a movie called Up the Creek with Tim Matheson. I remember I went to see that movie in the theaters when it came. I was like 14. It came right, right around the same time as this one. But... Uh, so hang on, let me go back to that. So yeah. that scene, so this is one of those things that it's just, you know, sometimes you know useless trivia about something mm-hmm. that will never help you in life. This right. is one of those scenes. So apparently this scene was derived from something called the Milgram test. Do you know about the Milgram test? I do not, no. So this is a like a scientific thing where basically this is what they would do. They would put someone in a room and they would give somebody else the ability to shock that person or provide or, or hurt them in some way. And it was this idea that like when you hurt and I may be, I may be incorrect on this, but you can look it up. It's definitely called the Milgram test. Okay. And, and the only reason I remember that is there was a Marvel comics artist named Al Milgram. And that's the only reason I remember it was called the Milgram test. And it was like, it wasn't actually testing anything useful. It was testing the, the compassion of the tester to see like, would you shock an innocent person because by doing so, you get a reward. And that was the idea. Someone behind the screen would be like, well, if you shock that guy, we're going to give you money or we're going to give you uh, something. And it was how much pain would you inflict on a person who absolutely doesn't deserve it simply because you're going to get something good out of it. And it's like this very important milestone psychological test that was done in like, I want to say the 70s. And that was what they were trying to build on. And then they thought, you know, it would be funnier is if we just sort of throw the science out the window and we just make it a humorous thing where Bill Murray's trying to hit on the girl. So anyway, one of those little useless trivia things that's right. never going to get you anywhere in life, but it's there was uh, there there's been it's been used in numerous shows and documentaries and such. But uh, yeah, if you if it's if it's something that mildly interests you, Milgram test, look it up in Wikipedia. One of the things about that scene, so my kids and I play this game called Spot It. And you have mm-hmm. to like find these like hidden symbols. And we were playing and, and every I've done this multiple times. We're playing the game and I'm like, oh, I spotted one. It's a couple of wavy lines. <laughs> my kids are like, what? There's, they don't know what I'm talking about, right? But it's yeah. obviously from this scene. Like I love when he get when that guy guesses, he's like, a couple of wavy lines. And he's right. right. And yeah. Bill Murray's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> just just so we can come on to Jennifer Runyon. Yeah. I laugh every time I see that scene. I think it's Well, great. and I love that he's like, he's like, we're paying you, aren't we? And he's like, you can keep the five bucks. It's his like five his bucks. gum falls out when he yeah. gets shocked. <laughs> any any favorite lines that we haven't mentioned already that you like from so, the movie? Not so much favorite lines, but there's this. So, again, every time you watch it, you look for something new. I watched this with my wife, not this last time, but it was on TV a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, and we watched it. And she pointed out something to me that in all the viewings I had ever watched, I had never noticed before until she pointed it out. And then when I watched it again this week, she's 100% right. The scene where they're in the ballroom 
and they capture the Slimer monster for the first time. They come out of the thing, and then the guy's like, um, oh, did you get it? And he's like, we came, we saw, we kicked its butt. And, and then they talk to him about the bill. And they say, this week, we have a special on. The cost to c- collect this ghost is $4,000, and we're having a special on proton charge, and that's only $1,000 for a total of five grand. And the guy's like, I had no idea it would be that much. I'm not paying it. And he's like, well, we can put it back. He's like, no, 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 okay, I'll fine, I'll pay it. So that what I never noticed until Kay pointed out to me was Bill Murray's character looks to Egon and Egon holds up the number of fingers he wants him to pay. And he holds up the four fingers to his face. And then later he holds up the one finger and he touches his nose to indicate how much should we charge for it? Cause this is our very first job. They never build anybody right. before. I never ever in 20 or 30 times watching this movie ever picked up on that little detail until somebody else pointed it out and my wife pointed it out to me. And then when I watched it tonight, I'm like, Oh my God, she is 100% correct. I never, ever, ever picked up on that until just this viewing. Very cool. That scene. There's another scene too. Remember when, when they're doing the the commercial? Yes. We're ready to believe to believe you. And and they can tell that they're playing it up, that they don't, they're not you know familiar with TV and what to do, and you can see at one point he looks down. And he's looking for his mark of where to stand. Oh, too, nice! I didn't that notice thing. that. Yeah, I picked that up, and and I just want to mention the the one um, quote that I like is with um, uh, Lewis Tully, which is Rick oh, Moranis. He has character. so many good lines. <laughs> he's, remember when he's having the party, and all of a yes. sudden that like creature, that ghoul monster shows up, and he's like, "Okay, who brought the dog?" <laughs> and then. He's like, I'm going to bring this up at the next tenants the meeting. The next tenants meeting. It's not, it's not supposed to be, be any pets. <laughs> and then the thing chases him outside and it corners him. And he's like, nice little doggy. Maybe I got a milk bone. Like he's got one in his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I don't know why that made me laugh too. So, nice. So Let me ask you this. Yeah. So again, when you watch it this many times, mm-hmm. certain little details start to stand out and you have to ask the question. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the characters, the bodies of Dana Barrett and Lewis Tully had sex. Um, it's definitely implied. It is um, definitely implied. It's definitely implied. So I, I, I think yes, but mm-hmm. partly because when they eventually they're on like a pedestal and they yes. sort of wake up as if they've been unconscious, mm-hmm. and Lewis's belt is clearly been removed or undone. And so I got to think, yes, again, in a movie that's PG rated, they're not going to show it. I think it's implied, but I got to say yes. And so my question is, if the answer is yes, do the characters, do the, do, does Dana and Lewis remember it? And this is a very meta question, but when you've seen the movie 30 times, these are the little things you mm-hmm. grasp at. What do you think? I don't Did think they, they remember it. Uh, if it did, because Lewis would mention it <laughs> and and uh, she yeah. was so out of it that she was wouldn't have noticed because she was like possessed. Um, I funny that you mentioned that, too, like this sort of implied thing, because there was a scene earlier in the film when Dan Aykroyd has a ghost hovering over him when he's in the bunk bed and his like yeah. belt is undone. I didn't get when I was little, did not understand that. Me scene. neither. Me for neither. years yeah. until somebody suggested what it might be about. And I'm like, oh my God, I oh, think you're well, right. You know, one other thing that I picked up on, and I don't know if this is good or bad, but you remember Walter Peck, the, the guy yeah. from the the, um, the EPA? Yep. 
He's the bad guy who was in Die Hard, and he was the bad guy in Real Genius. Yes, such a perfect bad guy. He's a perfect bad and, guy. And he's needed to, to kind of forward the plot. But oh, the thing for is, sure. you know, looking back on it now, reflecting, he's 100% right. Of course he is. <laughs> he wants to make sure their business isn't unstable. You know, which, which it totally is. I mean, there's the elevator scene we just talked about with the nuclear mm-hmm. accelerators. They can't cross the streams or like bad things. The containment system they have is like unproven. It's it's like full. Yeah. I mean, the city has bylaws and health codes for hot dog vendors on the streets, yeah. but, you know, not for trapping and containing ghosts. I mean, like this guy was actually right. <laughs> you know, he was kind of a jerk, but he was totally right. So. So not what you want to hear. But. One or the other. So we talked about, does this movie hold up? Yeah. So I have a couple of nitpicks sort of along that lines. And they're mainly around Peter Bankman and his advances on Sigourney Weaver's character of Dana Barrett. So when he goes to her apartment, he does whatever, you know, I mean, again, he's clearly has no idea what he's doing. And he like, you know, pretends to look for the ghost and he doesn't see any ghosts. And then... He shamelessly hits on her. Yes. And then she basically says, like, I think you should leave. And he's sort of like, well, maybe I should, maybe I should. Now, it's clear that, I mean, I got the impression that Sigourney Weaver's character is is a strong enough woman that if he was not going to leave, she was going to push him out the door. But it seems that also Peter Bankman's character was kind of a wuss. So if she had sort of said, like, you got to leave, you got to leave, and which he eventually did. But he says, like, I am madly in love with you. Like... That's a big red flag for a lot of reasons <laughs> by today's standards. And I mean, should have probably been by that. But then many scenes later, when he comes back for their date and she's possessed by Zool and she's like, are you the are you the key master? And she lets him in and he's like, this is a new look for you. And, all that. and then there's the whole thing where he realizes, oh, my God, she's possessed. And she's like, I want you. I want you. And he's like, I have a rule. Never make it with a possessed girl. And you're thinking, great. You know, he's coming up with a good reason not to take advantage of this woman. Right. But then when he calls the Ghostbusters headquarters and they're like, we have the gatekeeper here. We have the key master here. She's like, well, I'm with the gatekeeper here. And they're like, oh, and they're, they're, you know, he's having this conversation, which is important for the plot. And then he says something like, well, I've shot her up with all these drugs. So she's unconscious right now. And, and you got to ask yourself, why would he have brought those drugs to a date? <laughs> Like, that is, you thought that the the earlier scene was a little creepy. Like, this is just sexual predator written all over it. Jeez. Now, I don't think he did anything unsavory while she was unconscious, I hope. And towards the end of the movie, it's like, you know, once he rescues her, she's got the whole, oh, my God, you rescued me. I'm going to give you a kiss. And and then we learn in the sequel that, like, they never really got together. So you're like, oh, good. Nothing bad happened. But... Again, that's a little creepy and sort of just glazed over. And but by the today's standard, you look back and you're like, "Whoa, holy crap! <laughs> this guy is like no kidding off the off the rails, like predator guy. Like, he, why? So you know that that to me is a huge red flag. Now and then the other thing we always talk about in all these movies is the amount of smoking. Oh my god, everybody's smoking in this movie. No kidding. And, and that's a sign of the times. It There's, is. You know, it is what it is. But, uh, yeah, those, the, those the, are sort of my big red flags. But the movie was, was still all those things, you uh, know, yes. it's so good. It's, it, the I'm thing is, it's a lot of fun to watch. Great. And you can oh, see so good. why it was a phenomenon. You of know course. What I mean? It was just, it was so amazing. So, of course. Ugh, and it. it's funny. It's got so much humor in it. It's so funny. It's so well written. 
The performances are so great. So aside from these handful of things, which I mean, I don't want to excuse them, but in the greater picture, you got to think there was no real sort of quote unquote bad things that happened behind mm. the scenes. It was great. All it the was. casting was great. The writing was great. The yeah. performances were great. The story was great. The song was great. There's so like, there's a reason this was the number one movie yeah. of the year. It absolutely deserved it. It holds up so well for so many reasons. It I is agree. many, many people I know this is their all time favorite movie. This definitely makes my all time top 20 without question. It is definitely one of the movies I've seen more than any other movie in my top 20 without question and for good reason. And I watched it this week and I loved it and I can't wait to watch it again. I'm on from- <laughs> so we'll have to watch it again. Anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. Okay, Derek. So it was my movie this week. So it's over to you for trivia. What do you got lined up? All right. So, you know, one of our favorite game shows is the $100,000 Pyramid. Oh, right? yes. We love that. One, yeah. and, and, and we've done the winner's circle a ridiculous amount of times. Yes. And that's not to say that we shouldn't do it again, we're, but we're not going to do it today. Okay. But before you get to the winner's circle in that game show, mm-hmm. you have this, you have the thing where you have six categories, you pick the category, then you have to name your, you have to answer the questions in the 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. But when they give you a category, every answer in that category fo- follows some sort of clue yeah. to help you get There's the There's a answer. theme. There's a theme yeah. to it. Yeah. And usually they have some sort of clever pun yes. or something like that to give you a hint of well, what could tie all these questions and answers together. Right. So normally in the original $100,000 pyramid, you had to answer seven questions in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And in the newer ones, they make it a little easier. You only have to answer six. Today, because I know you are awesome at trivia, you have to answer 12. Oh, now, okay. I'm not going to put you on the clock. All right. But it's in that same vein. So imagine it's the 1980s. Okay. And, and there's I can Dick do that. Clark. There's Dick Clark 10 feet away from you. Mm-hmm. And he's showing you the big game board. And you're yeah. paired up with a celebrity. Let's say. Someone Henry like Earl Holloman. Or some like. Henry Winkler. Yeah. Someone. Well, Henry Winkler would be there. And, and it's, it's Henry Winkler's turn. And they say, Henry, what category do you want? And he picks the category that says, Bustin makes me feel good. Okay. <laughs> because you've already told him that Ghostbusters is one of your favorite movies. Okay. So then Dick Clark says, okay, Chris, here are clues. Go. Ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a cordless vacuum cleaner that was introduced in 1979 by Black & Decker. Oh, um, oh, it's, it's a handheld one. Uh, it was, it wasn't the Floby. Remember, the category is Bustin' Makes Me Feel Good. Oh, the Dust Buster. Yes! yes. All right. This Dairy Queen menu item has loads of peanuts, mounds of creamy, smooth DQ soft serve, and tons of rich, hot fudge layered high for one tempting treat. Is it the Buster Bar? It is not. You were close. It is the Peanut Buster Parfait. Oh, the Peanut Buster Parfait, of course. Okay. This American game show was hosted by Bill Cullen from 1980 to 1982. Blockbusters. Yes. Okay. I want to know the name of Marvel's that Marvel's Iron Man gave to his special suit 
of armor designed to give Tony Stark the means to subdue the strongest Avenger if the need ever arises. Uh, the bad guy buster. I have no idea. Unfortunately, that's wrong. It's the Hulk buster armor. Hmm. Okay. Next question. Retailers use this marketing and sales strategy to get a high volume of customers into their store during opening hours. Often a particular item or selection of items is offered at a special discount price for a limited time. I would say bait and switch, but that does not bust. Um, price busters? No, unfortunately that is incorrect. It is a door buster or sometimes called a door crasher. Mm-hmm. All right. This 1988 British romantic crime comedy film starring musician Phil Collins was based on events from the Great Train Robbery. The soundtrack featured two singles from Collins, which topped the Billboard Top 100 singles chart. Wasn't that just called Buster? It was called Buster. Good job. All right. This term is a nickname for the inside straight draw in poker. This type of holding is also called a gut shot. It's when you're holding five cards in a numbered order, but you have a gap in the middle. No idea. I don't play poker. That would be a belly buster. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Originally a comic strip character created in 1902, he was later adopted as the mascot of a shoe company in 1904. This character Buster name, Brown. Yes, was also used to describe a popular style of suit for young boys, Buster Brown. Good job. Okay. Got a few easy ones coming down the stretch here. This American actor, comedian, film director, producer, screenwriter, stunt performer was best known for his silent films in which his Buster Keaton mark was physical, yes, physical comedy with a uh, constantly stoic deadpan expression Buster mm-hmm. Keaton is correct good job alright this company originally flopped as a software service supplier for the oil and gas industry throughout Texas but later became a multi-million dollar media empire after being reconceived as a video rental store in 1985 Blockbuster you work there yes Blockbuster Video alright This 2018 American Western anthology film was written, directed, and produced by the Coen brothers. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Costume Design, and Best Original Song for When a Cowboy Trades His Spurs for Wings. No idea. Called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I will take your word for it. All right, and our last question. This is a prolonged speech that obstructs progress in a legislative assembly while not technically contravening the required procedures. Yes, filibuster. I was a poli-sci major. I'm surprised that you didn't come up with the 1981 Richard Pryor film, Bustin' Loose. It had to be Buster. Bustin' is not Buster. Oh, I gotcha. But the category was Bustin' makes me feel good. God, you suck at this. Oh, anyway, we had 12 questions. They all had Buster in the answer in some way, shape, or form. You did pretty bust. well. I think okay. you got a little more than half of those. A few of those I knew were going to be a little out of left field yeah. for you, but I was kind of hoping once you got the, the sense of the theme, you would pick up, which you did. 
So again, good job. Good job. Okay. So next week it's over to you. Our pop culture fantasy draft obviously was 1984. I picked a movie from this year. So now it's your turn to pick a movie from 1984. What do you got for us? All right. So I haven't actually seen this movie in, I think 20 years is probably generous, probably in more than 20 years. This movie, uh, Came out in 1984, finished 26 at the box office. We're going to look at the 1984 science fiction film, The Last Starfighter. Oh, what a great pick. So, uh, like I said, I haven't seen this in a long, long time. Oh, it's I haven't seen it since I was probably 15 years old. It's with, um, oh, what was his name? Lance? Um, Lance Guest. Lance Guest. He was he was in the, the original Superman movie. And, like, this movie was, this this movie when it came out was, like, revolutionary in terms of the computer graphics that it used. But, uh, oh, my God. And, oh, this is so good. And Robert Preston? That's the guy. With Centauri? Oh, I remember this movie. Well, it's all coming yeah. back to me. One of my favorite authors is Ernest Klein. He wrote the book Ready Player One, which mm-hmm. has been turned into a movie, which we a, did a on this podcast. Movie, yeah. I know you didn't care for it, but I no. liked it. The book was way better. And he's recently come out with the sequel to that, Ready Player Two. But in between those, he came out with a movie, or a book rather, called Armada, which leans very heavily on a similar premise to The Last Starfighter, where, again, sort of stepping on next week's show, a young person who is exceptionally good at video games basically gets drafted into an into an interstellar galactic battle where they have to use spaceships to fight aliens and they rely on their video game expertise because the video game has been modeled after the actual starships which is a big part of the plot of the last starfire starfighter and if you know anything about ready player one Ernest Klein leans heavily on 80s pop culture, and I don't think this was by any stretch of the imagination an accident that this book, Armada, leans very much on this premise. And I'm sure we'll talk about it a little more next week, but the movie I want you to watch is The Last Starfighter. Um, Came out in 1984. Certainly wasn't the number one movie of the year. Certainly wasn't the best movie of the year. But from what I remember, there's a lot to like about this movie. And like I said, I haven't seen it in a long, long time. I may watch it and realize it was complete crap. Yeah, I, may watch I don't know. It I remember really liking this movie, so I'm 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 interested to go back like you to see if it actually holds up or if I like it or if I think it's crap. I think I'm still gonna like it. I I have fond memories of this movie. Yeah, as do I. Now mm-hmm. again, I was only 10, 11 years old when I saw this. I do remember seeing it in the theater. I definitely remember seeing it on home video after the fact. So I, you know. I've probably seen it three or four times in my life, but I got to think the last time was over 20 years ago. So I'm kind of looking forward, not kind of, I am looking forward <laughs> to rewatching this. I'm literally holding the DVD nice. special edition, collector's edition in my hand. I can't wait to watch this. And I'm sure when I tell my wife this is next up on the docket, she's going to want to watch this with me. Nice. And uh, we'll, we'll come back next week and we'll talk about it. Last Starfighter from 1984. Sounds good. I'm glad that your wife likes to watch these movies with you because mine doesn't. That's for sure. But I tell you what, I will watch The Last Starfighter. We will come back next week and we will talk about it. And until then, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. 
Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.